Do you ever get those sudden cravings for your mother's cooking? You know the kind of food I mean, those delicious, succulent dishes, those comfort dishes that she would slide in front of you. Maybe it wasn't your mother, maybe it was your grandmother, or your aunt, maybe even sometimes your father. Well, our guest today certainly knows what I'm talking about. It's Lisa Schroeder, and she is the chef and owner of Mother's Bistro and Bar, and also Mamma Mia Trattoria from Portland, Oregon. Lisa, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And she is the author of a brand new book called Mother's Best, Comfort Food That Takes You Home Again, 150 Favorite Recipes for Mother's Bistro and Bar. So talk to me a little bit, the concept. I love the, in your introduction, you talk about the birth of mothers. Right. Talk to me about the birth of mothers, the cesarean birth you talk about. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, I was, I had to earn a living. I was a single mother trying to support my daughter, and I was working for Weight Watchers at the time. But I loved to cook, and I started a catering business. And like the shoemaker's children, my poor daughter would eat a lot of takeout. I'd stop for Thai, Mexican, Chinese, because I was so busy cooking for others. And I realized um, during that time that there was no place to get mother food, the food that I would make if I actually had the time. And I realized that that's what the world needed. And I, you know, I knew a lot about cooking, but felt that I didn't know enough to run a successful business. And there were a lot of layoffs uh, happening at Weight Watchers at the time. And I started and to- when was this? This was back in the 90s, the early 90s. Okay. So I started to get my ducks in a row, applied to the Culinary Institute of America, and uh, life actually actually uh, blew up and uh, pushed me harder than you can imagine up to the Culinary Institute of America to uh, pursue my dream of opening a restaurant called Mothers that serves home cooking for mothers around the world. But the concept didn't come to you immediately. It kind of developed and evolved, right? Talk Absolutely. Well, you know, I knew I wanted to serve mother food, but I felt that, as I said, I needed the credentials to know classic French cooking and to make it mother food, but better. So I went to the CIA. Then I worked in fancy French restaurants in New York and in France. Came back. At Le Cirque here. I worked at Le Cirque, Les Penas, and then in France at uh, L'Auberge de Liridon, Haute Savoie, and uh, at Moulin de Mougins with Roger Verger in the south of France. And there were a lot of learnings during that trip. I knew I wanted to serve mother food. And as I'm traveling around to these different countries while I'm in Europe and working, um, I made a trip to Morocco. And my ex in laws were Moroccan. And my ex in laws used to teach me how to cook couscous and a lot of uh, Jewish. Moroccan dishes. And when I went to Morocco, I was all excited. I'm like, oh, I'm going to get it at its source. I'm going to see Moroccan food really in Morocco. I'm going to learn so much. And I got there and I saw, well, wait a minute. There aren't a whole lot of Moroccan restaurants. People in Morocco don't go out to eat. They eat at home. That's where the best food is. And a light bulb went off in my head and I'm like, Okay, the food of a country is not found in its restaurants. The food of a country is found in the homes made with love by its mothers. And that's when the, the, it kind of solidified it all. But what it also did was help me refine the idea. I'm a chef. I need interest. I can't do the same thing every day. And I wanted to be seasonal and I wanted to have some menu changes, but yet I couldn't take away staple dishes like pot roast and chicken and dumplings. So it occurred to me that if I had a different mother each month from a different country, different climate, Mediterranean mother in the summer months, a Ukrainian mother in the winter months, I can be seasonal, I can keep life interesting, and I can honor a different mother every month. Which I think is a brilliant idea. 
Thank I really you. love that. And also, it's interesting. We share something because I, as our listeners know, I'm Portuguese. And people always ask me, why don't we know about Portuguese cuisine in America? Well, part of the reason is it's considered almost uh, heretical to eat anyone else's food outside of the home. And as you say in your book, mothers, quote unquote, live to cook for their families. My family did. My grandmother adored it. And that's what we did. We all gathered around, sometimes 22, 25, 27 of us on Sundays, sometimes in the garage, because there were too many of us, and we would have our lunches or our dinners. So I completely understand that. And it's nice to know that it really is something that goes beyond any kind of ethnic um, uh, persuasion or any kind of uh, uh, nationality. And it goes on to all of us as people of this whole idea of that mother's cooking and, and being passed down. And one of the things you talk about, and it's a little bit of a disconnect for me, so I want to talk about this, is you open mothers because you could not find the kind of food that you would serve your family if you had the time to cook. But yet you turn around and you write a book for people who don't have the time to cook to cook. So it's a little bit of a disconnect there. Why'd you do that? You're so astute. Well, okay. But the bottom line is we know reality. So there was a time when people would go out to a restaurant to get fancy food because at home, they made meatloaf every every week or spaghetti and meatballs on Wednesdays. But that had gone away. And there was mothers weren't making meatloaf. They were heating up a pre-made food. And we lost a lot of these recipes in this last generation. So that's where I come in. My goal, If I had my druthers, mothers would be cooking for their children and their families or fathers. But People would be cooking for their families every day, sitting around the table and sharing stories. I'm sure you've heard about those uh, the research that's been done that um, is a testimony to the fact that dining around the dinner table with your family keeps kids off drugs, keeps them wholesome, and does a lot to preserve their um, their innocence. So. I think that really the world would be a much better place if people ate around the dinner table and mothers cooked for their families. And that is why I made this book. But in addition to that, it is a refinement of mothers cooking. And the truth is, first of all, people aren't going to stop going to restaurants. I am not going to convert the world to making meatloaf at home. I mean, come on. <laughs> that uh, that if, if only. So mothers will continue to exist, God willing, and I will continue to serve the food. But my goal is to preserve these mothers' recipes for posterity so that people can cook at home. And they're written in such a way to make it easy to do. And sometimes you might look at some of the recipes in Mother's Best and you say, wow, they're a bit long. But they're only long because there's a lot of explanation, a lot of hand-holding, as if your mother is by your side teaching you how to cook. So many times you hear stories, and I'm sure if you come from a Portuguese home, you know, you'd go in the kitchen and grandmother would chase you away, get out of here, I'm cooking. But... Um, The beauty is that I'm there taking the measurements, grabbing the handfuls, and putting it in a measuring cup and marking it down so that we don't lose them. Well, what's interesting is there are lots of grandmother and mother cookbooks out there. There's the Asian grandmother cookbook, and that just came out recently. What makes this mama's food cookbook different, in your mind, than other mama food cookbooks? Well, number one... I was a housewife and a cook before I became a culinary student and a chef. So I take the learnings um, from my cooking school experience and my experiences in fancy restaurants, and I apply it to mother food so it's better. 
for example, one month we did James Beard's mother because I was about to cook at the James Beard house, and I know you've gotten a few James Beard awards, and I was really stumped. What am I going to serve at the Beard house? I do mother food. It's not shishi fufu. Well, James Beard's mother was an amazing cook who was really— And from your neck of the woods now. Exactly, from Oregon. Exactly. So it totally made sense. And um, I— I read some of the recipes and some of the things that she did. And, for example, James Beard would make chicken fricassee and just put the chicken in the pot and then thicken the sauce. And I said, well, you know, browned chicken adds another layer of flavor. Sautéing the aromatic vegetables will only add another layer of flavor. So where he would just throw it in the pot, I even improved, I think, on James Beard's cooking. Good for you. (laughs) So basically, yes, there are lots of cookbooks out there that are housewives or mothers that may have written a book. This is mother's cooking kicked up a notch by a professionally trained chef. So it kind of goes full circle. A mother who was trained as a professional chef who then turns around and writes a book for mothers, about mother's food, but with also a little bit of that professional, that that advanced eye to making things work. For instance, what I love in the book is what you call love notes. Now, the most clever way of bringing in the idea of notes, because in my book we have attention, which means attention. Right. And some people have note or or pay attention or whatever. But you have love notes, which I think fits in beautifully with your theme of your book. And I think what that does is the love notes kind of divide the cookbook in a certain sense. You can have the simple recipe for meatloaf, for braised beef, or a a, a pork dish. But when you read the love notes, it suddenly brings in a whole different perspective. You talk about when you're boiling potatoes of why you must start in cold water. And don't be tempted. I didn't know this part. Don't be tempted to start using hot tap water, which I always do about the idea of lead leaching into the food because hot water will leach lead out of the pipes. Never realize that. And the idea that uh, other things when you're dealing with the love notes of how it gives a deeper understanding. So someone can just go merrily along their way and not read love notes or read the love notes and get an even deeper perspective and help them understand it. Really, you're giving kind of a culinary foundation to these mama recipes, right? Absolutely. Um, first of all, it's uh, you teach somebody how to fish they eat for their life. You give them a fish, they eat a meal. And so many cooking shows and books out there say a half a cup of this, a cup of that. With the love notes, you understand why you do things and the wherefores. And that way, you learn things about cooking that you can apply to other dishes. Um, this is about teaching people how to cook and as well as make a dish at the same time. So as you say, you get two for the price of one. (laughs) And you don't have to read the love notes. If you don't have time, then just follow the recipe. It's written, as I said, in the voice of a mother teaching her adult child how to cook. So there's a lot of explanations and a lot of hand-holding so that we avoid the mistakes that are often made. So many times I'll read a recipe and it says simmer on the stove for 30 minutes. Well, is it covered or not covered? Yeah, exactly. You know, we took the time. Cover it. Lower the heat. Or, for example, and um, I'm sure you know this, when you're about to saute something, you want a very hot pan. And so nobody bothers to go through that step of telling you. And drying the proteins. Exactly. So we say heat the pan. After it's been heated for a few minutes, add the oil. Right. Step by step so that you actually do get the meat to be golden brown and caramelized, and that adds another layer of flavor. And that's just back to the love notes. 
you know, one of my little lines, I've been using it more and more, is it's all about the love. Right. It's all about the love. Why did your grandmother's food taste so good? Because she put every ounce of love in every dish she made for her family. Absolutely. That is how she loved you. And the way you can make food taste delicious is by putting the love in the food. And it's that little extra caramelization. It's taking that extra minute to heat the pan. It's letting it simmer nice and long, covered or not, knowing that it makes the food taste delicious and makes your family want to eat what you put on the table. And one of the things the book does also is just prove some of these wives' tales. Like, for instance, many people think when you uh, sear or saute meats on the outside, what you're doing is sealing in the juices. And you very clearly say, which is true, it's not. What you're doing is you're caramelizing. You're adding a layer of flavor. It's doing nothing for sealing in juices. And so I think it's great that you sort of uh, dis- uh, you, uh, you disabuse some of those notions and you break down some of those old kitchen wisdoms and wives' tales and let us know from a mama who's a chef some of these pieces of information that we can use in our recipes that also allow us to take us from the particular recipe into the general, which I think is wonderful. And one of the things you do that I think is is really lovely, talk to me about the salt and pepper measurements. Well, you know, as I was writing the cookbook, I noticed, I looked at other books, and I noticed that everybody says, and in fact, I'm sure if you pull three cookbooks off your shelf today, you'll see. And mine so, do. Salt and pepper to taste. Mine say that. And, you know, we talked about it earlier, and you said, well, well, you know, what if somebody has different tastes? Here's the thing. I'm trying to teach people how to cook. I'm trying to teach people how to make food taste delicious. And I think that that oftentimes the difference between amazing and eh is salt and pepper. And new cooks don't know how much salt to add to a dish for that right amount of flavor. So here's what I say. Follow my recipe exactly. Put in the salt and pepper measurements, I say, the first and second time or one or two recipes. And then if you find it too much for you, go ahead and cut it back. But at least you get an idea of what the flavor should be. Honestly, I think I've tasted some delicious food. And with a little bit of a salt uh, shaker on the side, it was amazing. Exactly. It happened to me last night. I under-seasoned my pork. (gasps) I know. And I had to do a little extra salt, and it was just (laughs) amazing. But I wasn't paying attention when I was cooking. I had too many guests over, and I was drinking too much. So that was part of the problem. You have an interesting – there are many recipes here, and the photographer Ellen Silverman did an incredible job throughout the book. Uh, But one recipe caught my eye because I think we have a very similar story about this. You have the $15,000 crab cakes with Creole mustard sauce recipe. Talk about that title. (laughs) Well, I went to the Culinary Institute of America, and at the time I paid $30,000 for my education. And when I was about to open up my restaurant, I realized that there were only probably two recipes that I would use from those two years at the CIA – the nickname for the culinary. And um, one was uh, crab cakes and the other was a pan-seared red snapper with a pink grapefruit burr blanc. Well, with the crab cakes, I remember in the class when we had it and it was so amazing. I thought they were the most delicious crab cakes I'd ever eaten. I swore when I had a restaurant, I was going to serve them. And so when I did put them on the menu, I decided, you know what? Those are the $15,000 crab cakes because that was half of my 30000 <laughs> right. And then we have the other recipe. And oftentimes people will ask in the dining room, what's the other recipe? And uh, while that's not on the menu, we run it as a special. It's not in the book, though. It is not. Right. We'll save that for the sequel. Very smart. <laughs> well, I, the the um, 
My story of that is we went to a cooking school in France, and it was a five-day cooking school, and it was $4,000, and the only recipe that we now make is the vinaigrette dressing. So we call it the $4,000 vinaigrette (laughs) that we serve to people. And uh, everyone thinks there's like liquid gold in there or something, but no, it's just simply it costs us that much money to deal with it. Ostensibly, it is liquid gold. (laughs) Yeah. So tell me, what are some of your favorite recipes? You know, I get asked that, and it's um. It's like asking, "What is your favorite? Who is your favorite child?" I know exactly. Um, one of the things I'll say is that slow cooked food is my specialty. Things that take hours to prepare, because a lot of times people, th- there's no doubt, people don't have time to coax the flavors out of food, and that's why I exist, and that's why mothers exist. Because while people may take this cookbook and cook at home, if only. Spending time in making a boeuf bourguignon or a coco vin or pot roast may not be in the cards for everybody each and every week. So slow-cooked food is something that I really um, love. The other thing is, if you said to me, okay, what's the one recipe? I guess I would say probably Bell's chicken soup, only because it honors my mother. Exactly. And what mother doesn't make chicken soup? You know from whether you're in Greece, Avalimono, Italian, Stradicelli, what do they make in Portugal? Conja. Conja de Galinha. There you go. So every mother has her chicken soup. And I can't think of a child that doesn't love their mother's version of chicken soup. So I'm going to say that one. That's good. Your mama's (laughs) happy. And one of the ones that caught my eye was the bacon and cheddar macaroni and cheese. I mean, this looks, the photograph, first of all, is so amazing. Talk a little bit about this recipe. Well, you know, at Mother's, I have mac and cheese on the menu. And I could not, for the life of me, serve the same mac and cheese every day and be satisfied. So we have a different mac and cheese every day at Mother's. Every and, day. Yes. Now, admittedly, we repeat. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not but, 365 uh, No, we do not have 300. However, we do have a lot. And I included a whole chapter in Mother's Best. So we have bacon and cheddar mac and cheese, and we top it with a dollop of sour cream and green onion. We have broccoli and smoked cheddar. We have a Southwest mac and cheese with pulled chicken, onions, peppers, jalapenos, jack cheese, and we top it with a chipotle sour cream and green onion. And even we have a smoked salmon, cream cheese, and dill mac and cheese. And the Greek macaroni and cheese. I, I, I just, it's feta. amazing because right now this is my mac and cheese season. I go right into mac and cheese, and I just can't stop eating mac and cheese. And even a, a, a gussied up version with spaghetti carbonara, you know, which is basically a mac and cheese in a certain sense. You know, I, I've been doing that a lot, and I'll tell you one of the ones we're going to do this weekend is a mac and cheese. Since we're not making Thanksgiving this year, we're guests somewhere else. We're making one of your mac and cheeses. We're going to figure out which one. Well, one of my favorites is roasted garlic prosciutto and provolone. Ooh. Now, the thing is, is that, so you know, I have a tendency to use things that have a lot of flavor, and I've tried that dish with the sharp provolone and just the smoked. You can't go too heavy on the provolone. Otherwise, it just overpowers. Right. So that is one of my favorites. But you know what else I want to tell you mm. is that we have a new technique. You There's do? all yes. And so, so to me. yeah, I'll tell you. So me. Listen, darling. What you do is we use only cream and cheese. We don't bother with a roux. So you put your aromatic vegetables in, you saute them. Let's say you're doing a Cajun mac. Mm. So you saute onions and peppers, you add andouille sausage and caramelize that. Then you add heavy cream and then cheddar cheese. Cook the cheese with the cream. Let it reduce a bit. The cheese thickens the cream. You saved yourself the step of the roux. I won't say it's any less caloric, but you save time. So I kind of call it Nouvelle mac and cheese. Nouvelle mac. It sounds wonderful. 
That's absolutely wonderful. So, Lisa, going through the book, you realize that some of these servings, they're pretty hefty. I mean, we don't have families with 18 people in them. Tell mm-hmm. me why you have such large servings. Well, not every recipe has large servings. Right. Those that are take less time are normal uh, family size feed four. But I was realizing, and especially in these this day and age when we're trying to conserve energy, not only ours, but the universes, the Earth's, um, it makes a lot of sense to double up on soups and stews that use one pot, have to be on the stove for hours, might as well make more. Um, Also, it's kind of my version of fast food. So when you make a black bean soup, it makes uh, eight to 10 servings. That way, immediately when it's done, you put it in quart containers, write the name, put it on masking tape. That's what we do in restaurants. I don't know if you do that, but buy some masking tape, write on it with a Sharpie, a, a permanent marker, and pop it in your freezer. If you put it on the side, you can stack them up and you can see all the soups you have at a glance. And then it's midweek, you're in a rush, boom, out comes the black bean soup, top it with a dollop of sour cream and green onion, serve it with a salad and bread, and you've got a meal. Bada bing, bada boom. Bada bing, bada boom. There you go. Same thing with like boeuf bourguignon or coco vin. They make a little uh, more, a few more extra servings. Again, it freezes beautifully. It reheats beautifully. It's only better the next day. And you have all the instructions on the freezing and the reheating. Yes, in the love notes. In the love notes, which are very (laughs) useful, everyone. Read your love notes from your mama. (laughs) And um, talk a little bit more about the mom, the the mother of the month. I I love that. But what I love here, because in the restaurant you have photographs of mothers and their children, and you also have a corner reserved for toys for the children to play, which I think is great. It's very family-oriented. But in the book, you do bios of some of these mothers. Talk about that. Well, actually, on the menu, we do bios. So every month, we feature the cuisine of a different mother. We call her the mother of the month or the mom. Um, And on one side, we tell her story. And on the other, we have her menu and her specialties. And we've had mothers that have been survivors of um, concentration camps, uh, escaped Hungary during the war, German mothers, Greek mothers. So, Any um, Portuguese mothers? Well, you know, now that you mention it, I have to feature my good friend Ingrid because I know actually your next question is going to be how do you find the mothers? But but I'll tell you, <laughs> this is how. This is Here it is. It's happening right here and now. Portuguese, Ingrid. Oh, my God. She's such a great cook. She's a mother. I've got to call her. So um, And I need to because she is an amazing cook. But uh, we haven't and we should. So... Um, I'll feature a different, as I said, I'll, I'll feature a Mediterranean mother in the in the summer months where the food is a little more uh, warm climate oriented. And then um, a Hungarian mother featuring stuffed cabbage or paprikash, chicken paprikash or goulash. And it's amazing. You can have five different mothers from Hungary who will do five different versions of goulash. Each one is different and unique. And in fact, unfortunately, a few recipes got cut, cut from the book. So there has to be a sequel. But in in the cookbook was going to be two separate recipes for goulash. One mother did it with sauerkraut and a sour cream. Another mother did it with peppers and tomato. Mm. So we tell the mother's story. We have her special dishes. Again, I must confess, sometimes I'll change them a little bit because the mother doesn't use what I think to be good culinary technique, but that's where I come in. Otherwise, there's no point for me being here. So I've had a Czechoslovakia mother that made chicken with mushrooms. She would put the chicken in the pot, didn't brown it at all, added the mushrooms, 
then put some stock. Well, I know by sauteing a mushroom, I am just adding a ton of flavor. Absolutely. So I heat my pan till it's smoking hot. I add a little bit of butter and brown my mushrooms before following the rest of her recipes. But you do something that I find fascinating is the mothers come into the kitchen for that month and you work alongside them, learning their techniques, working with them, developing, and really just making it the best it possibly can be. It's not just, hey, give me your mom's recipe, and that's it, I'm done. I'm going to like just chef it up over here. You're really working with them. Yes, that's true. Sometimes it's a blessing when I'm really, I have a really crazy busy month, and a mother will send me a cookbook she's written, and it's already clear, and I don't have to do much work. But it's a challenge to put together a menu, as anybody Absolutely. will attest. So just because a mother makes a great fried chicken, and a stupendous um, pecan-crusted catfish, I can't just throw it on a plate. I've right. got to make it restaurant I've got to make it delicious because the first thing is people eat with their eyes. Nobody wants to just get a, a piece of fish on a plate. Absolutely. So my challenge is how do I create a nice dish for a restaurant environment? So this month, for example, we have a southern mother. She gave me her cookbook. And it was easy to follow. So we did her fried chicken, but we're serving it with collard greens and bourbon mashed sweet potatoes. She may not have ever put that together. Her pecan-crusted catfish with a honey butter drizzle is served with a side of corn pudding, again from her cookbook. But would she ever serve it together? Maybe not. So that's, again, where I come in. There is a bit of pro. Thank goodness I, I got something for that $30,000 besides that $15,000 crab, <laughs> crab cake. cake. <laughs> Um, one other note, just I might as well add it. Where do these mothers come from? Sometimes I will seek them out. Hey, I should do a Portuguese mother, and I know somebody who's Portuguese. Sometimes they're in my dining room, um, and they say, hey, how do I get to be a mother of the month? Some One time I had a daughter who wanted to honor her mother. Her mother was Irish, and she was celebrating a very important birthday. She worked with me on the menu the daughter did. She gathered all her mother's recipes. I put together the menu. The mother was running a marathon that month and came down to Portland from Seattle and saw herself on the menu as a that surprise. Must have been wonderful. It was really exciting. Another time I was scampering, I was really scurrying for a re uh, mother. I was going to be working with a Louisiana mother who was all the way in Louisiana, and the person coordinating it wanted me to fly her in, and, 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 and I do take care of the mothers. A, they become part of my family, and B, they get treated, them and their immediate family, to a meal on me. Now, that could be four people, 12 people. In fact, one month I had a Mexican mother that had 14 children. She invited all her grandchildren. We filled the entire dining room. Just 60 family. people with her family, and I bought everything. My staff was looking at me like, everything? Comp everything? Hey, I said, that's the deal. Her immediate family. But So one month I was scurrying for a mother. It didn't work out with one. All of a sudden I get a cookbook in the mail. This mother had been told by her daughter, who was in Saudi Arabia, who happened to read USA Today, saw me on it, told her mother she should send me the book. It came from the sky. There it was. And I had a mother of the month within two days. Oh, that's amazing. And remind us, how long has the restaurant been open? We're celebrating our 10th year in January. January 1st will be 10 years in, in, in business, which is really exciting. And then Mama Mia, the Trattoria? Five years. And that happened mainly. I've been living in Portland, Oregon. Moved there, in case you can't tell, from New York. <laughs> <laughs> how could I know? And I was dying for, like, East Coast Italian food, things like chicken parmesan, spaghetti and meatballs, uh, manicotti. And I could not get it in Portland, Oregon, to save my life. There's plenty of, quote, unquote, 
quote-unquote authentic restaurants. You can get butternut squash tortellini up the yin-yang, but when you wanted a Parmesan, forget about you it. You can't find it. So um, I just decided I got I to gotta open that up just so I can eat there. That's great. Lisa, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Again, we're talking to Lisa Schroeder, who is the chef owner of Mother's Bistro and Bar and also Mamma Mia Trattoria in Portland, Oregon. And her new book, which is now in its second printing, which just came out this month, this book, is called Mother's Best, Comfort Food That Takes You Home Again. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. This is David Lee. Tune in again soon for another episode of our Author's Answer series where we'll talk to more authors, more cookbook authors, more food writers, more chefs, more everyone in the food world, which will always leave you hungry for more. <laughs>